everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of Mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning at business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce. Today, I'm speaking with Daniel Folkman, the SVP of business at GoPuff. Daniel was one of the first employees at GoPuff, where he helped scale the company to over 500 micro-fulfillment centers. Plus, he spearheaded over $4 billion of fundraising and led large M&A transactions with companies like BevMo and Liquor Barn. Daniel, welcome to the show. Stephanie, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited because your background is so wide-ranging. When I was looking through your LinkedIn, I'm like, okay, this man was in sports. He went over like multi-time founder. He started hardware companies. Like, What hasn't he done? So I would love to start just a little bit about you. I mean, your path and your background before you got to GoPuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, and it's funny you say that. I appreciate that you think I had a widespread and and interesting background. I think at 25 years old, trying to find a job with no resume uh, and, and no real world experience was a little bit more challenging. But, you know, look, I got involved in the startup world when I was in college. So I was a student at Syracuse. I tried to start my first company when I was 20, 21 years old. I thought we could solve credit card fraud. I thought I could solve credit card fraud, excuse me. Wow, 21, ambitious. Yeah, 21, (laughs) ambitious, right? Yeah, that's great. And effectively, we had created this concept that we could, um, you know, we found this biometric fingerprint film uh, in Norway that would fit within the old magnetic stripe credit card. Because at the time, Europe had moved to this chip and pin model that we've adopted in the U.S., but the U.S. hadn't. Uh, this was like 20, 2010, maybe 2011. And the changeover costs from a POS system standpoint was like tens of billions of dollars for these credit card companies. So there was still some you know, tension in, in terms of making that shift. 
And so effectively, we came up with a way to combat credit card fraud, both physically and digitally. One with the biometric fingerprint film, which would make you know it impossible to use a card without someone's thumbprint. And then we had created an algorithm that would change the three or four digit security code on the card every 60 seconds, similar to like a Lockheed Martin employee code to combat the digital fraud if you had stolen someone's information. So we thought it was a great idea. This was like pre-3D printing. I had no engineering background. Uh, I won a couple startup competitions. Ultimately, the business failed miserably, uh, but I learned a ton. And this was kind of my first like step in failing forward. And so over the next few years, I was a first hire or a founder of a couple early stage companies. As you mentioned, everything from like influencer marketing to sports media um, to campus housing. And then when I had shut down my most recent company before I joined GoPuff, uh, I spent like four months trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. As I mentioned, not having a resume at 25 years old, but having all of this like startup experience that was seemingly really valuable uh, was like a weird intersection to be at. You know, it was like eight years ago, I think seven years ago. Uh, and I didn't want to take just a traditional, you know, office job, if you will. Nothing, nothing wrong with that, but it wasn't for me. Uh, so I spent like four months trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Uh, I moved home. I lived with my parents for the first time since high school. So thanks to them for, for allowing me to do that. Um, and ultimately, I spent those four months like meeting as many people as I could, uh, trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And whether it was, you know, if someone was in San Francisco, I was in San Francisco. If they were in LA, I was in LA. They didn't know where I, I lived because I just wanted to be available, met with people in politics and uh, startups and venture, um, you know, a bunch of different industries. And I'm from Philadelphia, so little did I know that my next move was going to be in my own backyard. And so I, I met these uh, these two kids at the time, you know, Raf and Yakir, who, who were starting GoPuff. And when I first met them, there was they hadn't even raised any money. When I reconnected with them in this period of time, they were looking for a BD guy. So I was one of the first 10 to 15 corporate employees. We were in like five, six cities at the time and just raised our first round of funding and that was six and a half years ago. So it, it was a, a pretty fun journey getting here. And it's been an even more fun journey since I've been here. Mm, amazing. So for anyone who doesn't know what GoPuff is, can you explain what it is and the business model? Absolutely. GoPuff is the first instant commerce platform. So we've created this category. Effectively, what we do is we deliver everything from snacks, ice cream, and alcohol to baby pet beauty products, over-the-counter medication, personal care items. We deliver it in under 30 minutes for a flat delivery fee. A lot of markets were 24-7. Many markets open very late across the US and the UK. About a thousand cities right now, over 500 micro fulfillment centers, as you mentioned. We actually own over 400 liquor licenses, uh, which is a huge competitive advantage as well. And we're covering roughly 30% of the U.S. population with, within our delivery zones. So basically everything you can ever want delivered immediately. The big difference for GoPuff is we operate our own micro fulfillment centers, as I mentioned. So we own the inventory. So we're buying that inventory from manufacturers and distributors directly. We make our money on the products that we sell and our advertising business, um, not on take rates or, or fees um, like a lot of third-party marketplaces do. I mean, that seems like a really strategic choice. Was that one that was made in the early days? Because you look at all the others, like the DoorDashes of the world. I mean, they just get it from the store and bring it to you, right? And so when did you guys decide that you needed to have micro-fulfillment centers with inventory to kind of control the whole process? Yeah, look, that was part of our founder's vision. So they're both first-generation Americans. They grew up in their family businesses. One was in, you know, Yakira grew up in the jewelry business, Roth in restaurants and banquet halls and pharmacies. And the reason that's relevant is because 
there was no such thing as like venture capital or private equity for their family businesses. And so the two things that they're, they, they were rooted in at a young age were controlling the whole customer experience and making money <laughs> on, on your business, which I know sounds crazy uh, and today more relevant than ever. But for the last decade, that was not a priority of many tech companies. And so when they started the company, it was important to them that they controlled the whole experience and they made money. And so for the first three years of the business, uh, it, was, it was cash flow positive. Um, because they didn't take on any venture capital. So they didn't raise any money until year, like three years in. So all, all the credit to them. The, the model has evolved since it started with a 500 square foot warehouse and 100 SKUs. We now operate 10 plus thousand square foot warehouses with you know four to 5,000 SKUs. But at the core, we buy inventory and we sell it for more than we buy it. Mm. Was there any point over the past couple of years where you had challenges because of that model, whether like supply chain challenges or too much inventory or not enough inventory? Like, what does that look like the past maybe like two to three years? Yeah, I think when you create a new category or when you do something that no one's ever done before, it presents, it comes with challenges, right? That's part of being a disruptor, whether that's, you know, early investors doubting the model itself, thinking it's too cost heavy, you know, how do you make money, things like that which is ironic because we make money on the goods and a lot of these asset like marketplaces don't. I think less challenges around too much or too little inventory, more of building the right technology to manage the inventory. So when we started the business, there was no off the shelf technology for this idea of like last mile delivery and inventory management. And so we've built the end-to-end technology stack that we like to say powers instant commerce, right? Everything from how do you receive product where does it sit on their shelves? How do you manage that digital chain of custody of that inventory the whole way through to how do we route those orders to customers and make sure they get the things that they want when they're supposed to get them? And so I just think the complexity of building a new business model presented a number of different challenges. But we've always liked to say that you know things that are infrastructure heavy and regulatory heavy, you know, they present opportunities for competitive advantages. And that's the stuff that we've invested in very heavily over the last nine years. And that's why we believe we're in a position where it's it's a category of one and with market share of 70 plus percent in the US. Mm-hmm. How do you look for like those competitive advantages? Or maybe tell me how you go about that to even find like, I mean, to me, thinking about the regulatory environment is so massive and like where to even start. Unravel that process for me of how you all go about that. Yeah. I mean, look, when we started the business, um, it was three, it was four years into the business that we started selling alcohol, right? So the business started very focused on like snacks, ice cream, drinks, things like that. We saw an opportunity in alcohol. We were based in Philly. And at the time, uh, the complexities of, of delivering alcohol in Pennsylvania, which is a control state, were very high and, and we haven't seen anyone successfully do it. And we were very thoughtful in how we went about it. Uh, and we, we tested it and we were able to become like the first, you know, instant delivery provider for beer and the business exploded, right? As you can imagine, the ability to get all of these other things plus alcohol, it's great for customers. And so when we saw that, we did a ton of research. You know, it's a big shout to our, our legal and regulatory and, and uh, government affairs teams over the past handful of years that have been able to really pioneer what this needs to look like. You know, we've had to spend a lot of time in the space uh, to get this right, you know, and it's a net benefit to the communities and the distributors in these markets, right? Because we're, we're, you know, high tide rises all boats. We're increasing the pie for alcohol sales in these markets, but we're also providing a service for consumers where they don't have to go to the liquor store anymore, right? Which you can imagine puts people in a position where they can stay at home when they've had a few drinks and not have to leave. 
So we, we've just invested a lot of time and resources into that space. And it's a big competitive moat because no matter how much money or resources you have, it takes time to build, you know, this, this, the, the liquor license business out. It's regulated at the county level, not even the state level. So it's highly complex. It's incredibly exciting, we think. Um, and it's something that we've spent a lot of time on. Mm, that's cool. Is alcohol your largest category? Like what people come to the platform for? No, uh, it's not the largest category, um, but it's definitely a basket starter. Mm-hmm. We do find that consumers who buy alcohol are shopping materially more frequently and spending a lot more money on a, on a per trip basis. But, you know, we between frozen foods, alcohol, baby pet products are like some of the fastest growing categories. We recently launched our kitchens business, which is like fresh pizza and coffee, uh, you know, milkshakes and things like that. All of those businesses are growing. So we have a nice spread in terms of the distribution of category sales. Got it. Okay, so I want to talk a bit about your competitors because I was reading an article where you were saying most of your rivals will probably be extinct. I think you said maybe in like a year or so. And I want to hear your thoughts on that because that's a nice, bold statement. I'm like, we have to touch on that. Yeah, well, we're, we're just honest. <laughs> I like that. I'm like, not many people say things that, you know, they think and like put it out there like this. I'm like, we have to center around this article for a little bit. Yeah, no, look, I mean, the reality of it is, is we've been doing this for almost 10 years now as a business. And as I've mentioned, we've invested substantially in infrastructure, in liquor licensing, in technology, in the right people to run the operation. Because I think, you know, companies like Amazon have shown that this global supply, they, they've built the, the best global supply chain in the world, you know, and whether it's trains, planes, automobiles, et cetera, the movement of goods across city and state lines, they, they've done better than anybody. This idea of last mile delivery or instant delivery has been, you know, an enigma, I think, over the last few decades as, as consumer behavior has shifted. And so I say all that to say that in order to be successful in this category, the material investment that we've made in those things, infrastructure, technology, people, was key for the business model to work. And we spent the first three years, to the credit of our founders, making sure we nailed the business model before pouring gasoline on it and, and scaling it, right? What we saw in the last two or three years was the inverse approach to that, which was you know, one of the outcomes of, I think, the frothy funding environment that we've experienced over the last like eight to 10 years. You know, one of the largest bull markets I think we've ever seen and where you can pluck money off trees. And when you can do that, the, the need to find a path to profitability early is not there because you can raise a ton of money, you can subsidize your acquisition costs for consumers, and you can scale very quickly. That was not the approach that we took. So we were very deep in making sure that this model was scalable before we expanded it. And unfortunately, I think because of the environment at the time, a lot of the folks that came into this instant commerce space, they weren't as invested in building the infrastructure to build a, to have a scalable model, rather land grab. The fastest path to customers was, I think, the mindset that we saw that would have gone on a lot longer had the macroeconomic environment not shifted. And I think with, with capital resources drying up as quickly as they did, it exposed a number of companies, not just in our category, by the way, but in, in every category you know, at the early stage and those who didn't have sustainable models in place that were ready to scale and weather the storm are the ones that are suffering. And we saw this coming because we had just done it for so long. And we knew that the way that these businesses were being operated, they just weren't structurally sound. And so, you know, the chicken come home to roost at some point. Um, The market just drove that, I think, to be faster than we expected. So has GoPuff always been 
profitable, like even till today? So we are profitable on, on the per order basis, on a per order basis, and the first three years of the business, you know, we we were cash flow positive. The way that we've looked at the last, you know, six or seven years has been investing in growth. So it's a pretty material investment you have to make to open up as many buildings as we've opened up, the liquor licenses, the technology, the other things that, that we've done to grow. But we've proven that this model works on a per order and, and per MFC basis. Yeah, that's the important part. I mean, I was reading about the amount of companies who were not even profitable on the orders to begin with. And I'm like, huh, that seems like a tricky place to start a company, like not even being profitable from that first order, or at least the second or third. Like, I don't know, it doesn't seem like it'll work long-term, not very sustainable. Yeah, exactly. I think it makes it, <laughs> if you've never been there, it's hard to get, it's a lot harder to get there than if you've done it for for quite some time and you've made the choice to invest in, in growth. And I think, look, at over the last year, it's put us in a position to be able to kind of shift our mindset a lot faster than others because we've done this before. What are you all thinking right now around like this current economic environment? I mean, how are you shifting your team, your company, or like maybe preparing for the next year or two? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, for us, the focus has been since the beginning of the year, which is is to accelerate our path to profitability. That's something we've been fairly public about. We're really fortunate to have the capital that we have. Um, you know, we were one of the last companies to to bring in new capital going into this new environment and one of the first companies to start to restructure things in the business. And we've been very methodical about that. It hasn't been easy, but because of the structurally sound model that we have in place and that we've had in place, we knew what we had to do to kind of put the business where it needed to be, to be the long-term winner. And that's our goal. The the focus is, you know, a self-sustaining path to profitability and to be the long-term winner in the category. And the investments that we make are rooted in how do we drive you know, more bottom line benefit uh, and how do we drive more efficient growth across the business? Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders, distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. So I was reading a bit about your guys' instant ad platform, which I think you had a lot to do with building it out, or maybe it was even your idea to begin with. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm giving you too much credit on it, but that's what I read. <laughs> I appreciate the credit. It wasn't necessarily my idea. I was. It was the first thing I was hired to do. Credit to our founders. They had a vision very early on that there was an opportunity here, um, probably earlier than we should have invested in it. And that was my first job was to to kind of build out what that the beginning of that could look like. Okay. So tell me a bit about what this is. I mean, is this essentially like retail media? You guys are offering ads up on your platform for brands like Pepsi or whoever to be able to come in and buy spaces on GoPuff's website. Is that how to think about it? Directionally, yes. I mean, look, it's no secret that the digital advertising landscape is changing fast, right? And retail media has become, you know, one of the most exciting things, in my opinion, uh, and the opinion of many in the digital advertising space. Between, I would say, the accelerated adoption of people using delivery services to get their goods and some of the newly implemented privacy restrictions by Apple, um, you know, it, it has totally changed the way that CPG advertisers specifically are thinking about deploying dollars, right? Especially now with this this macro environment too, 
the focus on highly attributable ad dollars uh, is everything. And so the way that our ads business works is, you know, we have a suite of capabilities that allow our CPG partners to invest and grow their businesses on and off our platform. And that's everything from, you know, our sponsored search and promoted placement to our sampling capabilities where we're able to put product in basket based on who customers are, where they are, what they buy, what they don't buy, highly targeted in a way that I believe is unparalleled uh, for the sampling space, you know, are kind of robust and unique data offerings that allow brands to understand how consumers are shopping and and thinking uh, on our platform. And then some off-platform programmatic capabilities where we can actually drive consumers to our platform with this high intent to purchase. I think when you think about our business and our platform, what makes our ads opportunity bigger than we think anyone else has is not that our search product is better or our promoted placement is better. It's that we can deliver products in 20 to 30 minutes consistently. And we have all of the first party data to understand how to best create an experience for our consumers, um, if, whether you're us or the brand. And so that combination of those two things is what we believe makes it better than you know the other platforms out there, albeit in its nascent stages. And you know today we're seeing a ROAS that's you know almost around three x uh, across the platform, and we have certain capabilities that are doing even higher than that. And it's early days, um, you know. And so when I joined the company, uh, I remember saying to our founders early on that this is going to become a data company. I don't know if we've gone that far yet, but but the opportunity that we have to make advertisers more educated in how they're spending their dollars, we think is massive. And when you have a consumer who is this bottom of the funnel uh, and this high intent, it's like an unprecedented opportunity to deploy ad dollars to drive behavior. Mm -hmm. Could some of your competitors like do the same thing? Like, why would it be harder for them to do that? Like, what do you guys have access to that maybe they wouldn't? Well, it depends on who you consider our competitors to be. But if you look at more traditional retail, even with their delivery services in place, they don't have that immediate consumption component. So it could be an hour or two hour delivery. If you look at the third party marketplace sector, they don't own the inventory. And I think one of the challenges in that is that if PepsiCo or Coca-Cola is buying an ad and they don't know if that product is going to be in stock when a customer clicks, there's a lot of risk in what that experience could look like. Imagine a terrible experience would be one advertiser buys an ad and their product's out of stock and the driver doesn't know that until they get to the store and that product is replaced with a competitive product. Mm, Got it, yeah. Think about how frustrated you'd be as an advertiser, albeit like how frustrated the consumer is. Um, For us, because we manage the inventory, it's a big competitive advantage. So it's not that other retail media networks aren't super successful or valuable, but we think we are bringing incremental opportunities to advertisers in terms of the way that our platform operates, because these are a lot of, for a lot of these categories, these are use cases that didn't otherwise exist before our platform. Yep. Love it. All right. I want to talk about sampling now too, because I think we had a company on maybe like, I don't know, six months ago and their whole company was around sampling and be able to create, you know, sampling for other companies. How did you all get into this space and what have you seen when it comes to maybe, you know, like an order of something after someone gets a sample in the mail for the first time with their bigger order and they maybe were not even expecting it or do they click it? I don't know. But like, what does it look like for that brand afterwards? Yeah. So sampling actually came about because it's like a pretty funny story. Early days. So this was like my first year at the company. We had a meeting with 
a very large CPG advertiser. Um, and I remember they were walking us through other marketing initiatives that they've done. And it was really discovery for us because at that, in my first like six to 12 months, it was like, learn, how do we become a great ad platform? And I remember they were giving us a presentation on a lot of the sampling work that they've done, right? And I'm sure the sampling you're familiar with is like, you're walking down the street, you pass a 7-Eleven or a Walgreens and like someone is standing outside unassociated with that company, just like hands you a muscle milk or hands you a, you know, something and they don't know who you are. They don't know where you're going. They don't know if you want this product and they have no idea what happens after, right? That was like the traditional means of sampling. So other companies have tried to solve this in different ways, but they're walking us through what they've done on the sampling front. And I remember they put up this slide, I'll never forget it. And they said, here's what we're doing with sampling. We gave out hundred thousand samples, right? You know, we had boots on the ground giving out samples. I don't remember the exact number. <laughs> I said, what kind of data did you guys get back from this program? And they were like, oh yeah, let's show you. We have a ton of data. They clicked to the next slide. There was two data points. The first data point said numbers of samples distributed. And the second data point had like an estimated number of people that received samples. I mean, I hope it's one-to-one. <laughs> right. That was it. I know. Wow. Crazy. And I was like, okay, great. But like, what kind of data did you guys get? And they're like, no, this is the data. And at that point, it clicked for us that there was this huge opportunity to make sampling much more trackable and measurable for CPG advertisers. And so we've spent a lot of time working on this this capability um, internally. We ended up building something like hacking someone together in like three weeks. We did our first sampling program with them and it was like super successful. But now we look to where we are today and, and where the future of the category is going. You know, you have brands who are giving out millions and tens of millions of samples every year. And a lot of that is not trackable or measurable. It's expensive because you're paying for a free product and you're potentially paying some sort of placement fee to whoever's giving it out. So I have seen different variations of companies launch sampling programs, and I think it's a huge step in the right direction. I would argue that we have you know, the best ability to sample because we know everything about the customer before they receive the sample. So we can make sure that samples get to the right people. We know how that customer engages and behaves after receiving the sample. And then we can help you know, inform both future sampling programs and other types of advertising programs and the targeting based on what we've learned from you know the segmented reporting that we're able to distribute back to our partners and so you know it started where it was an uh, surprise and delight capability and over the past year we've introduced different types of opt-in capabilities as well around sampling so we think it's early days uh, again for the sampling platform but it's the like trackability and measurability component that many companies lack when it comes to sample distribution. There's a really big untapped opportunity here to partner with folks who are already receiving a lot of samples and become the fulfillment and measurement arm of those companies uh, you know, on the behalf of these advertisers. So it's something we're really, really bullish on and, and uh, we're spending a lot of time and, and resources to build out. Yeah, that's super exciting of a program to have. What have you learned so far when you've been implementing this? I mean, what tests have you made? What works? What doesn't work when it comes to sampling? Well, I think our general philosophy um, with partners is test and listen. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's a lot of good examples in the industry of what what is working today. And so I think we start there. But then the question that at least I ask when when I'm in the room, and I know my team does as well, is just, what is something that 
you are not getting with your other partners that you would love us to build? Like that is, I think, one of the most important questions and probably the the most important question you can ask for any sales role, right, is tell me what I can do that's different that you, you want from my competitors that you would pay for. Like that, the start there. Um, and it's that old philosophy of like, build what they will buy. Don't build what you think they want because the latter is never going to get you anywhere. And so that's really been the general philosophy. And, and so we'll take what we've built. Um, we'll start to test what, what our partners want to see. Um, you know, if those things work, we'll commercialize them and, and bring them to market. And if they don't work, then it's what have we learned in this experiment and how can we take that knowledge and do something else with it? Mm-hmm. What have they been asking you for? Like, what are some things that they want you to do? Well, I don't know if I can share all of that because it's it's come you know, on, Daniel. Something okay. In development, what I would say is this: there there is a fast growing hunger amongst advertisers for more measurement, more trackability, and a better understanding of incrementality and what's driving incrementality. And that is commonly asked uh, across the board, and probably not just specific to CPG. And that's you know an area that we're spending a lot of time with our partners. Yeah, have you seen? like a certain percent of people order after they get a sample or like any numbers you can share of like what it looks like when you give someone a sample for them to then go and buy that brand on your platform after? Yeah, we're definitely seeing higher than market average in terms of consumers coming back and buying the product. But it's more than just the reorder rate. It's very much understanding who the right customers are for those brands. And so the richness um, and the detail of the data that we have access to on the different types of behaviors that we're seeing post-sample I think we're just scratching the surface, to be honest with you, on that. Um, and that's really where a lot of the value comes in for, for our partners. Yeah. Earlier, you mentioned that you guys had like, were first experimenting with surprise and delight, and then you gave them the option. I'm wondering which one works better. I mean, to me, if I had something randomly show up in the mail, I'd be like, oh, was this an accident? I don't know if this was actually meant for me. And versus going on there and being like, oh, wow, cool. I can select something to be able to try out. I think there's... um a beauty brand that does this well. I can't remember what the name is, but they're like, yeah, you can try one of these, you know, pieces of makeup. And I just got to click it. So when it arrived, it's like, I remember like, oh yeah, this was a free thing that they just gave me. Did you guys see any like differences between surprising someone versus actually letting them be intentionally pick it? So it's actually a lot of the work we're doing now to study, you know, what the impact is post-order on that. I will say that we don't just throw a product in the bag unexpected, like without any sort of information associated. So we'll put like a, a card with the sample in the bag okay. so that you know you as a customer know that you've gotten something for free to try. And we've actually had like unbelievable feedback from customers on the sampling component because imagine like and, and realize a lot of this is super targeted. So you open your bag, you're a huge chocolate lover, you get some new chocolate bar that you've never heard of, and it's like a gift from GoPuff to you. And you're like, oh, this is great. I love it. To the point where when there's not a sample in the bag, you're almost disappointed. And so that's been you know, a big effort for us is making sure there's always a sample in the bag, not just for our brands, but, but for customer experience as well. Oh, does that get you in a tricky place where people have expectations now? Like I always get something free with GoPuff. So when I don't, my anger outweighs my excitement. <laughs> I don't think it's that extreme. Uh, everyone's always always has expectations and we're hyper-focused on delivering a great customer experience, no matter what that means. Um, you know, as long as they get what they want when they want it, I think that is the most important thing. The sample is gravy. Yeah. Yeah. I got it. So what are you most excited about for the coming next year or so? Like, what are you building or what things are you trying out that you're like, I don't know if it'll work, but I'm super excited about this project. I mean, look, we have a number of exciting things going on. 
obviously I'm, I'm bullish on our ads business, uh, in a very biased fashion. <laughs> um, you know, I spent a lot of time on that. Um, you know, but I think another area that we're really excited about is we feel that we have built a, an unparalleled infrastructure, uh, and capability to put product in people's hands faster and more efficiently than anybody else. Um, and a lot of the stuff that we're spending our time on is how do we start to enable those capabilities for other partners. And so we've got partnerships with Uber uh, and Grub, you know, where you can actually have the GoPuff experience embedded in their platform, um, you know, and we're exploring a number of different verticals where that makes sense as well. I think the we're seeing a growing consumer trend where consumers want to be met where they're spending their time versus have 10 different things they have to go do on 10 different platforms, right? We believe if, if you look at, you know, companies of the past, kind of opening up the pipes to your infrastructure is, is a tried and true method um, for growth. And so there's some exciting stuff that we're doing there. And then I would say, you know, one of the other things that we're really bullish on is our uh, fresh food and, and grocery businesses. Um, you know, we've been able to expand those you know, pretty rapidly over the past few years, and we're seeing really nice consumer adoption. And, you know, for us, no one category is kind of like the hero category on the platform, right? It's the idea that you can get this wide breadth of assortment in one basket um, that makes us different. And so continuing to invest in that has been something we've spent a lot of time and we're really excited about as well. Awesome. Well, I'll be excited to watch where you guys go and what you release and keep an eye on that ad platform because that's awesome. And yeah, I'm excited to maybe bring you back in the future and hear everything that you've learned after you continue to iterate and learn and launch. That'd be great. Daniel, thank you so much for joining the show. It was a pleasure having you on. Where can our listeners find out more about GoPuff? We have a website, gopuff.com, and you can also download us in you know both the iOS and Android app stores. So I would highly encourage everybody to do that, experience it, and let me know how you feel. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks, Stephanie. listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.